today's episode is um, a very, very, very special one. I have my incredible friend. I guess I get to call him uh, the legendary Jonathan Fox. Now, Jonathan is a local legend where I'm from. When I was first starting out, when I first started playing music, he was the first person to, he was the first journalist to write about me. He he wrote, I got this whole page in the newspaper in the local in the River Reporter, and the title was A Star is Born. And this is before the like, you know, the Gaga new movie came out, and I hadn't, I didn't know about the old movie, so I didn't understand the reference. I just thought he was like, oh, Star is Born. He was just so generous to me in that article. Um, and after he wrote that article, we became friends, and I've come to admire him. He's got many years on me, and he spent he spent his formative years in Hollywood in the 80s. Um, and so I talked to him about everything from just being in that era of Hollywood. I think you'll, you'll kind of get a pretty cool glimpse into... Um, what it's like to be a working actor in Hollywood, not a star, but, you know, character actor on all these different shows. And he talks about being pigeonholed and he kind of played a 15 year old nerdy boy for 15 years, you know, for many years. Um, and he's one of my favorite human beings and he's precious and close to my heart. And he does so much for our community upstate in the Catskills and Bethel. He really, he brings a certain enthusiasm and creativity um, and brings people together. Uh, the amount of people that, like, uh, you know, I'm grateful to be friends with him, and I'll hang out with him. He's got him and Dar- his cute dog, Dharma the Wonder Dog. She's a service dog, and she's she's an angel. So I'll go around, and the amount of people that come up to him just saying nice things about his writing, about his photography, and just really about him. Uh, he's a great storyteller. He's had an incredible life um, and is just a, he was so generous with his time. Um, this was recorded a few months back. We did it over Zoom. Um, and I guess if there's one thing that I want you to get out of uh, this conversation, it's just how uh, how someone can have such an incredible life story um, but still be so present. Uh, he's such a present human being. He's so... Um, every time I talk to him, it's kind of about he, he works very hard and loves to work and, and um, he's always kind of onto the new project, but has already had a very, very storied and incredible life. So I just wanted to, to you know, I just I frankly just wanted to talk to him because he's just um, one of my favorite human beings. And um, obviously the past year and a half has been really tough. I've not I've not been able to see him as much as, you know, normal. Um, like I said, he's got some years on me and I, I you know, it's like. I think you got to go and live your life and all that, but I've I've certainly been more careful about around my friends that are uh, older and more vulnerable and all that. So he's precious, he's beautiful, and if you're from upstate, you know him. Everyone knows him. He's this local. He's a legend. He's a legend where where we're from, and he's famous. And um, but I think if you've never heard of him, you're gonna love this as well. Um, you're gonna get to know just a really beautiful and um, charismatic strange wonderful flamboyant uh just fantastic human being um so enjoy my conversation with the incredible jonathan charles fox all right jonathan uh you are you're the crown jewel of the catskills you're a local legend and (laughs) You know how much I love you, how much I admire you. Um, I'm grateful to you both for your personal like friendship, but also you were the first person to ever write about me in the newspaper. You know, um, I remember you telling me that once. I was I was stunned. Even though you were young. Well, I, I mean, you were young, but you, you, I was shocked. What did I, I say? I was more did I shocked. say anything nice? It was all horrible. You're like, this kid's never going to make it. Uh, he's, uh, no, the, the headline was a star. The headline was a star is born. And I didn't really understand. I never, I never even heard of that movie. Uh, wow. Now everyone has, but, and you were phenomenally generous to me. And it was so exciting because I was, I was in the paper and at the gas station and my, my, my dad could like buy a copy and it was insane. And um, you've been playing gas stations ever since. So think about it that way. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Pay's not great, but uh, you, get, no. <laughs> you get exposure. Constant um, audience. You've had, yeah, you've had an insane life that um, 
I, I mean, I, I keep pushing you to write a book. I know you're, you're, you've written some stuff down. You've spoken about other stuff on stage and you've done shows. Um, but let's start from the beginning. You were born in Binghamton, New York. I was. Uh, what, when were you born? When was I born? That's just different words to say, how old are you? <laughs> I'm a baby boomer uh, in the ultimate sense of the word. I was born in 1954. Uh, I grew up in the Wonder Years in Binghamton, New York. What a great place to grow up during the Wonder Years uh, on the shores of the sunny Susquehanna River. So, uh, you know, Binghamton, I always, I always thought, it, I still think that it was a wonderful place to grow up in during that period of time. So I was in elementary school in the 60s. You know, I... Uh, I, uh, uh, and my family was fortunate enough to also have a little place on Seneca Lake. Uh, and so I spent all of my time, I, 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 my house was literally on the shores of the Susquehanna River. I was either on the river or on Seneca Lake uh, most of my uh, life before I went out into the world. So I have a great appreciation for the outdoors, but Binghamton was a big enough city uh, at that time, there were about 375,000 people in the triple cities, which is comprised of Binghamton, Johnson City, and Endicott, for those who don't know. Uh, so the, it was a city, and it had a downtown, and it exposed me. It had the, the town itself had an ability to expose me to all sorts of things. And uh, that way, I was able to make informed decisions on whether I wanted to live in the city, live in the country, or a little bit of both. If I had to guess, you, you, uh, you, a little bit of both was the answer. Is that well, it turned out to be a little bit of both. I did, uh, uh, yeah, after graduating school, I actually went to school in Binghamton as well because it's got such an amazing uh, university there now, Binghamton University. I'm old enough, Shlomo Franklin, that when I attended Binghamton University, it was called Harper College. And after that, <laughs> it became SUNY Binghamton because it's part of the State University of New York school system. Uh, it became SUNY Binghamton while I attended college. And the only reason I chose to attend college there was that my parents didn't live in Binghamton, New York any longer. They had already gone to Florida. My father retired very early. So they had gone to Florida because I didn't want to be a townie. You know, so it was not public knowledge that I had I was born and raised in Binghamton when I went to school there, which, of course, now is considered the <laughs> Yale uh, or the Harvard of the SUNY school system, state school system. It's an amazing school. And I graduated. I, that's where I got my Let master's me, degree in fine arts. Forgive this dumb question, but did you have a happy like? Did you have a happy childhood? What was I your did. Like? I, I, I did. I mean, ultimately and. You know, it's funny because you started by saying you're always encouraging me to write a book. And I, I'm, I'm sort of always writing a book. Am I not? Because I do write a personal mm -hmm. column called In My Humble Opinion award -winning for the award-winning River, River Reporter. But I've, I've been writing this column, In My Humble Opinion, for over 25 years. 14 of those have been with the award-winning River Reporter. But I, I was doing it beforehand. And my column, as you know, is about my life. And sort of every column I write is a chapter. I've written enough that uh, I'm at the point where I'm thinking about um, compiling. Uh, it came up in oh, conversation today that. with one of my publishers uh, and just and compiling it. because it's kind of like a, a diary of sorts. You know that. Uh, so oh, yeah. it's not like I'm not writing a book. I'm just not consciously writing a book. <laughs> yes, is the answer to your question. I write about my childhood a lot, which is why I just I interjected. Uh, yes, did I have a, 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 I had a better than decent childhood. I had a great uh, elementary school education uh, at Alexander Hamilton Elementary School, which ironically is now a nursing home. And I had a great uh, uh, further education, my college education. I was very fortunate, again, growing up during the late 50s, early 60s as a kid in the United States alone, much less Binghamton, New York. We had it good. You know, we had it good. My family was yeah. definitely middle class. Uh, my father was a jeweler. My father's father was a jeweler. My mother's father was a jeweler because, you know. We're Jewish, <laughs> and I'm the one who really kind of stopped that train. I think everybody expected still in the 50s and 60s, certain things, there were certain expectations, which all changed with the 60s. And hey, changed, it's never too late, Jonathan. I changed along with that. I have no desire to be a jeweler, but that doesn't mean I don't like jewelry. <laughs> uh, now I work hard so that I can buy jewelry and wear jewelry, should that be my intent. 
you know. Yeah, I had yes, a good childhood. You look glamorous. Yeah, always very, very glamorous. Absolutely. That's a lot. The word often applied to Jonathan Charles Fox. Oh, he's glamorous, they say when I walk out of a room. <laughs> You're funny. So, uh, for, right, forgive me for just jumping, but when, because you were a child star, but you, you alluded that you finished, you went to college in Binghamton. You didn't even leave till, till after college. Is that correct? I left occasionally to do work and child star is really, I would say a gross exaggeration. I was a working child actor for a period of time, but not so much as a child, more as a young person. So, uh, even though I played characters on TV who were 15 years old, I wasn't 15 when I did it. Hopefully some people aren't listening to this. <laughs> and uh, uh, well, when I was playing, it, <laughs> it lasted for quite a while, actually. I mean, I had extremely youthful looks, which is what got me in a lot of doors. But that's kind of jumping ahead to LA. I mean, I did work when I was younger. Uh, I did some print work when I was, I don't know, eight, you know, 10. Uh, my first Broadway uh, experience, I was 16. So I was, yes, in Binghamton, New York. Uh, I went into New York City to make that job happen. And then we had to work with my parents because I was underage uh, to get me to New York and working and still being uh, educated. Uh, uh, but that was uh, spotty off and on. And I did, I absolutely wanted to go to college. And that's why I applied to graduate from high school early at 17. And I applied to college early at Binghamton for their theater department so that I could uh, start going out into the world. Because when I, when I started at Binghamton, I did think I was a, a child star and I thought I was a really big shot. I'm like, well, I have to start on this early because I play young people and it's not gonna last forever kind of a thing, uh, which was true. So I did both. I went wow. back and forth. Uh, the whole while I was in college, I went back and forth to the city and did some work, including that infamous Broadway show when I was 16 years old that never became anything. And, my parents were thrilled because I came back with my tail between my legs. <laughs> what did, did uh, yeah. they want? Like uh, just a reality to set in for a minute or something? My parents Why did they not. Happy? They were not anxious to. I think my mother secretly was a little thrilled by all the attention. My father was dead set against all of it uh, and made that very mm -hmm. clear. But by the time I was 16 and was offered a job in a Broadway, a future Broadway show called The First Day of Us. That's how famous it is. I'm sure you know the entire score. It was a musical very very well known they were out on the streets giving <laughs> tickets away and nobody wanted to come in and watch that being said oh, by by that time i was 16 so even though my parents kind of said we're putting our foot down this is not going to happen i said you know what you're not the boss of me i'm going so i either with me or again me but i was 16 i was fully prepared to just walk out of my parents house uh, and ultimately, that's what I did. So when that didn't work out, when the Broadway show did not become, you know, uh, uh, the king and I, and I came home a couple <laughs> of months later with my tail between my legs, they were thrilled, but I was done. And that's when I decided mm -hmm. to apply for early uh, admission to college and just get out of my parents' house. So they moved to Florida, which made it so much easier. They were like, well, he doesn't need us. We don't need him. <laughs> and they left. They just, they, they cut to the chase. We're, we're, uh, we're. Old Jewish people, they weren't quite old yet, but um, no, but they we're weren't. Just go That's to what Florida. I'm saying. They were, they were definitely young they by, cut to by the what chase. we think of as uh, Florida standards. My yeah. sister was already in college. I said, I'm done with you. I'm not coming back. So they sold the house and left, which worked out for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't wait. Um, and uh, and so, I, so I started actively working as an actor, you know, while I was still in college. I was actively working. So what was what was your life in college like? How much could you relate to that, Jonathan? And what was it like? I mean, 17 to what, 21 or something? Yes. And well, and then I, I actually I got my master's degree by accident. I was working at such an accelerated pace because of my work schedule also uh, that and because I started early, I graduated from college. I got my my uh uh, my BFA, my Bachelor of Fine Arts, I, I got all the credits necessary for that before I was 21. So I just stayed in school wow. because I was in a groove, you know, and I will say I'm whispering like nobody can hear us. I, I don't know that I've ever said these words publicly, but I thought I was, I just thought I was everything, honestly, when I was in college because I was a star. 
you know, I was in a very mm. rarefied atmosphere of a few people by the grand scheme of things. Uh, you know, there were some people who absolutely stood out uh, in the theater department in Binghamton in the early 70s. And uh, I was one of them. I did well. I was okay. I, I did well. And uh, so on one hand, I was under the illusion that that's how it was always going to be and that life was going to just hand me whatever I wanted because I was a freaking star. And on the other hand, I was a freaking star in you know, college and big to New York, which is not reality. So I had both things going on at the same time, but uh, my school experience was good. And I, I, again, had a very good education. I'm fortunate. What was your, what was your relationship like with your, right. What was your relationship like with your peers with, did you see yourself like, cause you're alluding, you felt like you, you were a big deal, which, you know, in my eyes you were, but, but you know what I mean? Um, and you, did you, did that lead you to separate yourself a little bit from your peers or did you feel? Like oh, well, absolutely not. Or... Absolutely not. You know me, we know each other on a personal level. So you know that I'm the epitome of a, a people person. I'm a pretty friendly guy. Mm. I'm somewhat outgoing. And uh, I uh, was alongside an awful lot of extremely talented people. Uh, and we, uh, even though mm. I thought, that's why I said I'm whispering it. And when I went home at night, I'm like, oh, I'm a pretty big deal. But uh, publicly, I, yeah, didn't I, know think, what that's like. I certainly yeah. didn't think I was better than anybody else uh, uh, when it came to my peers, because there were a lot of very talented people and they still exist and they're still talented. And Binghamton has produced a lot of talent, uh, most notably, most recently, apparently, for being the school that... Um, uh, Flo from Progressive Insurance went to. She was in the theater department <laughs> there, I guess, fairly recently. And That's it's, a good gig, man. It's a, oh, that is a major gig. She'll never have to work again, and she probably won't because she's Flo from Progressive. So it's a heartless. How wholesome would that there. be if? Uh, how wholesome would it be if she just like gets old with in that role, and then you know, in, in forty oh, years, she just that would be good, it, but, but probably you know. not entirely satisfying to someone who wanted to go to school to to be the best actress she possibly could. And even though financially yeah. she'll never have to worry again for the rest of her life. If she stopped today, she wouldn't have to worry. Uh, but she does. She, her goal was probably not to be flow from progressive. Yeah. I'm sure she's sitting in therapy, you know, using some of that progressive money going. Like, uh, well, and then... I can only say this from my own experience, which I think you're somewhat interested in. And that is that when I went to school, when I graduated from college thinking I was a pretty big stinking deal, smell me and went to New York I very, very quickly learned that I was one of another 10,000 other hopefuls. And I say 10,000 because I'm just talking about the other guys who were like nerdy looking Jewish intellectual, probably somewhat decent actors my age. Because there are millions of people looking for that business. As soon, I went to my first audition in New York after I graduated from college and, and I was in a room full of people who looked just like me. I'm like, oh. <laughs> I'm no longer, you know, the big deal in college. There's a whole army of us out there uh, uh, because the business is so focused on how people look. When you're talking about acting, certainly, and print work, it's, it's strictly based on how you look. And then the acting comes uh, secondarily. I was one of the lucky ones because mm -hmm. I was probably better than most. So I sometimes got the job. Not always. Uh, not always, but it wasn't my point is slow-mo. My point is it wasn't my goal. My goal was not to graduate from college and go to New York or Los Angeles, both of which I did, and become a professional teenage nerd for the rest of my life. And that's what mm -hmm. happened to my career. It, that's what happened to my career. I, I worked at the National Shakespeare Company when I graduated from, from uh, uh, college. And it was my first big, good job was to be working at the National Shakespeare Company and uh, Actors Repertory Theater at the Cubiculo, which was then part of the National Shakespeare Company, and uh, doing Shaw and Brecht and Ibsen and Shakespeare, of course, uh, and wanting to, I wanted to be so involved with musical theater. So I had a wide, a wide array of things that I wanted to do and uh, things that I wanted to accomplish as far as acting was concerned. But pretty early on, I got cast as a Jewish intellectual, could be thought of as nerdy or geeky, <laughs> dorky, you know, dude with his nose in a book. And that's what I wound up doing for 20 some odd years, which did not thrill me. So I feel for flow.
<laughs> so you uh you started in New York how how in New York City after college how much time how, how much time are you in New York and then do you go straight to Hollywood? I was I what is that I was in New York like? uh, at the best possible time in my humble opinion to have been living in New York uh, in the early 70s to mid 70s I, I left New York in 79 uh, to uh, go out to California for what I thought was going to be a week or 10 days uh, to do a guest spot on a show called Fame, which was about the high school performing mm -hmm. arts. I had an audition that's a, it's a pretty well-known movie, Fame, very dated. When did that come out? 76, hmm. maybe? Uh, 77, yeah. I think the movie came out. It was so successful that uh, uh, television came calling and uh, someone decided to make a television series of, of, of that story and brought a lot of the original characters with them and some new ones. And uh, I, I got a call from my agency. You're gonna go out and audition for the, you know, a guest spot on the show. So I, I did and I got it and they, they wanted me to join the cast. And uh, uh, I didn't wanna do any of that. Although it was very thrilling, it was not my objective. Let's put it that way. It was, don't get me wrong. It was very exciting, but that was never really a part of the plan. And uh, so I wound up actually being persuaded to, to go for that particular thing and, and seek work in television and film, which had not been my goal. Uh, because I'd been offered a job. It's like, how do you turn that down? And I went out there and then the job did not materialize. Uh, I did my guest spot and then not till a year later did I go back to them. Uh, but in that year, you know, I kind of got established as the nerdy Jewish new kid on the block and got hired to be that character and only that character on a lot of, you know, fun kind of uh, 80s uh, shows like Different Strokes and The Facts of Life and The Jeffersons and One Day at a Time. And uh, if Norman Lear made a show, even even uh, Archie Bunker's place, if Norman Lear made a show, I was on it at some point playing the same character I played on yeah. every single one of them, which was the young. I mean, if I played 15 year old, 16 year old, 17. I never played over 18 years old in my entire career. And when I stopped, I was in my late <laughs> 20s. So I know you care about the age thing, so I'm telling you right now. I can tell you how it ended, if you care. Uh, it ended with an Please. audition for... Well, I want more in the middle, but... There was yes. a show called Punky Brewster. You're far too young. Uh, but there was a, a very popular show in the 80s called Punky Brewster about a like a 12-year-old girl, a sitcom. And uh, maybe she was 14. I don't know how old she was. She was a teenage girl by the time it was over, I think. Uh, Punky Bruce still exists. Your listeners can Google her. Anyhow, I had an audition mm -hmm. to do a guest role, and the guest role was to be like a, you know, nerdy, teen, Jewish, bookworm boy. I don't know what it was supposed to do to ask her out. I don't know why I was supposed to be there. But I went to the audition, and I did my audition, and I read my lines, and they put it on tape. And the casting director said to me, Jonathan Charles Fox, let's go talk in my office for a minute. And my initial thought was, okay, I got the job. And once again, I'll do the same thing. I could do it in my sleep at that point. But instead she sat down with me and said, you know what, Jonathan, we love you. And in my head, I said, uh-oh. <laughs> and she continued <laughs> and she said, but I can tell just by looking in your eyes that you're not 16. And I was auditioning for the part of a 16 year old boy. And I looked at her, we did know each other. We had worked together. And I said, that's because I'm 27. <laughs> and I said, please, I'm begging you let me grow up. I had been playing 16 for a decade. And uh, I said, cast me as a young, you know, law student, or a, even a young professor, or a, a, a young man, but a man, not a boy. You got to let me grow up. And it was my last mm -hmm. on camera audition. Pretty much ever. That's when I left the business. Wow. Yeah. I did not make that transition. Her response was, you know, I, I can't make it grow up. I can't, I can't do that. Her response was, you're the kid from fame. Wow. Her response continued with, you're the Atari video spokesboy. They didn't call you a spokesman. Mm -hmm. They called you a spokesboy. And it's a very, God. it's a rough business, you know? Of course, and in the intervening years, people have said to me, well, you could go back now. Well, yeah, that ain't happening now. <laughs> I have a different life now. 
Well, my sense of you, and maybe it's, you know, it's sort of like the 2020 thing where you look back and have all this perspective, but I want to say that you, I'm sure a painful time ensued, but, but you sort of accepted it and then did other great things with your life. Is that, is that like, what does the next year look like for you? The next five years? Is it painful? Following are that? You lost? Are you following that? Yeah. Uh, it was rough. You are correct. It was rough. It was devastating. Uh, but I had already been unhappy with my work for a number of years because I had stopped even having the opportunity to do things other than play that nerdy Jewish intellectual, awkward, too smart for his own good kid. I mean, it was just always the same thing, regardless of whether it was a film or a television show, whatever it was, I was not fulfilled uh, artistically at all. And the more money I made, the less happy I became. But I still need to correct you and make everybody understand. I was never a child star. I was a character actor, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was, yeah, people might look at me and go, oh, isn't that that guy from that commercial? Yeah, but that's not a child star. And uh, mm -hmm. so, so the next year or three, they were rough. They were rough. The only advantage I had was that I had a few couple, a couple of dollars in my pocket. And so mm -hmm. I could sit back and look at the situation and say, what the hell am I gonna do now? Cause it ain't that. That was clear. That door slammed in my face that day. And uh, I could get emotional thinking about it now. It was tough because it was all I ever knew from the time I was five years old. My first job, I was five. So from the time I was, and I loved it. I did love everything about performing and acting in the world of theater and music and all those wonderful things. So yes, was I devastated? Absolutely. I had the luxury to sit back and try to figure it out during the devastation. And uh, that's when it occurred to me that the only thing I knew was the world of entertainment and that maybe I would try my hand at writing about it. Mm -hmm. And here we are. <laughs> here we are. And usually, I mean, I, I, I have a lot of questions, but usually you're writing about entertainment is a far more entertaining than the thing itself. At least for me, that's true. And, Thank you. Oh, I love that. Thank you very um, much. No, it's, I mean, you, you, you know, you made, you certainly made my performance <laughs> more entertaining, but uh, um, take me <laughs> back. So, so you've been performing, um, you've done these sort of one man shows or sort of comedy. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's incredible. And you mentioned you, it was all just like kind of storytelling and little anecdotes from your, from your insane life. I remember I was watching it with Kate, my, my, my partner, and she was just like, how does one person have so many insane stories? Like, she's like, ha like some people just have that kind of life. So I want to ask you about the, the, uh, the tornado or the hurricane. Do you, do you, do you know what I'm referring to? I don't a tornado or a hurricane. I've been through both, but I don't think you're referring to either one. Well, I'm not, no, no. Can, can you give me another clue? Oh, the earthquake. The earthquake. There it is. Oh, oh. See, I well, yeah. I've been I've, around the block a few times. I've been through a few natural disasters. <laughs> all of those. You're like, which uh, one? <laughs> so you, so yeah, and you, so you're bringing up the uh, uh, Northridge earthquake in in Southern California, 1994. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Why have I discussed it publicly? How did you even know? You what about? Well, yeah, I know this story, <laughs> and it's insane, and I want to hear it again, just selfishly. <laughs> Insane. Oh, well, that's nice. Well, yeah, you have to pay money to hear that story again. But uh, uh, what do you, what do you, <laughs> I, the, the fact that I do go out into the world now, I'm glad you brought this up and I appreciate it, that I do go out into the world and, and talk uh, for what is always a limited period of time. So people know what they're getting into, whether it's an hour or 90 minutes or more, they at least know what they're getting into before they take their seat. But there, there used to be there, a light dimmed in the, in the universe when a man named Spalding Gray died. I don't know if you know who Spalding Gray is or was. Mm. Uh, he was a writer and a storyteller mm. and a very, very, very smart, talented, wonderful, beautiful human being. And I had great admiration for him. And the first time I ever went to see Spalding Gray uh, in a formal setting, I was in a theater. I sat down. It was a decades and decades ago, I sat down along with the, everybody else who had bought their tickets and it was a full house. And he came out with a table, sat down at a table and like in a light and had a, a you know glass of water with him and just started talking to the audience. And he told a story 
maybe one like about the uh, 94 uh, earthquake uh, in California. And uh, I, along with everybody else in that room was absolutely mesmerized uh, because it wasn't a script. It wasn't, a, it wasn't memorized per se uh, by any stretch of the imagination. He was just a guy sitting at a table talking to more than one person at the same time and, and telling a true story that was gripping and entertaining and funny and sad and all the things you want, want when, when you seek entertainment. And uh, I sat there saying, I, I want to be this man. Mm. I want to do this. I don't know how, I don't know when, I don't know why. I don't know who's going to let me do it, but I want to do it. And uh, Spalding Gray is no longer with us, but he was my inspiration for what I now do on a somewhat regular basis. Thankfully, the universe has been very good to me and I go places and you've been to one of them at least and sat, I sit down and I talk to people, uh, but I don't, I don't really plan out what we're going to talk about. I have a very loose outline. The fact that it's true, like the story about the 94 earthquake, uh, if it's amusing or interesting, that's good. Uh, but the fact that it's true makes it easier to do because I don't have to make it up. I don't have to keep track of the, what's not true and what isn't true. I just tell stories about my life. Mm -hmm. And I do kind of try, I do, I do thematically attach them in some very loose form every time I do it. It's always different. Even when I do the same show repeatedly, no two are the same. I'm like snowflakes. Uh, and uh, I have proven that repeatedly because I don't know what's going to happen until I sit down and do it. Uh, and I do get to do it. And I, uh, I, my most recent was at uh, the Forestburg Playhouse, the beautiful, fantastical, historical Forestburg Playhouse, which you yourself have played. Franklin. Franklin Trap in the Forestburg Playhouse. And that tavern is a great room to play, is it not? Oh, beautiful. I, I was yeah. so... Um... I was so not deserving of playing there. It's embarrassing. <laughs> oh, that is so not true. You were absolutely deserving. We had horrible, horrible weather. I remember it like it was yesterday. We had terrible rain and still people came out to support you. And it's a great room for you. And I will do everything in my power to make sure you're a part of the spring series. Uh, maybe I could open for you. Enough. Maybe I could open for you or something. Oh, you can open for me at any, any time. We'll have to talk about that offline. Okay, uh, but I did do a honor. show there fairly recently. Franklin was very kind to ask me if I would participate in their summer series, which turned out to be, you know, COVID related, but COVID friendly. They had to reinvent themselves, but they're good at doing that. And so I did do a show where I sat down with an outdoor audience uh, full of people safely distanced and talk to them about what we're discussing right now, which is my, my history in the theater and the world of entertainment. Yeah. You told uh, the, uh, you told the earthquake story in Calicoon and that was, that was the last time I saw Gail. Um, and Oh, I see. That's funny. Cause I don't remember telling that story at all, but I, I could tell a different version of it anytime somebody asks, cause it's true. It did happen. Wow. No yeah. secret that the earthquake happened. Did it affect me deeply? Yes, it did. Because okay. I lost. I, I I'll give you that. I'll give you a few tidbits. But okay. I did. I lost everything I owned. Uh, I was living in Santa Monica, California, in a beautiful 1931 uh, seaside bungalow that I loved living in so much. 650 square feet of space. I lived in for 18 years uh, because of where it was and very. It, Santa Monica was extremely charming still back then. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, yeah, the 94 earthquake, uh, for those uh, who don't know me, and that would be all of you, I assume listening, uh, I, I have a, a penchant for things. I believe that we uh, live mm -hmm. in bodies, in, in, uh, that we live in this life form, uh, these carbon-based life form, uh, specifically so that we can enjoy things, taste, smell, feel, sight, hearing all those things that we, we uh, hopefully don't take for granted as living beings. Uh, and so part of my belief system is that we were here to enjoy all the beautiful things that life has to offer and whatever that means to you. So it means a lot to me in a lot of ways, but that includes my home, which you have been to, which is filled with things. I like things and I make no, no uh, apologies for it is what I'm trying to say in short. I like things and I believe that part of why we exist in this body is so that we can appreciate things, whatever those are. And uh, so I had a lot of things and a lot <laughs> of those things were made out of glass and uh, a lot of those things were, were fragile and a lot of those things were delicate and a lot of those things were, were certainly breakable. And if they were any of those things, they broke 
in the 94 earthquake in my uh, charming 1931 bungalow, uh, one story wooden frame building that shook back and forth as if it was a snow globe being handled by, you know, a giant five-year-old baby. Yeah. <laughs> so I lost everything I had unless it was unbreakable. So my couch didn't break. Uh, my couch didn't break. My refrigerator, even though it marched itself all the way from the kitchen to the front door, that wasn't so far. It fell over. It, I think it did it break. I think so. But it wasn't glass. But I had a 30 year collection of Baccarat crystal that I had such such non Buddhist attachment to <laughs> that I was, you know, a little destroyed when all of that broke and uh, I, my mother had my mother had spent her whole life making me things breakable things out of ceramics and they all broke too so that's a different story for a different time but she wasn't happy either and she didn't even live there wow <laughs> it was bad and taught me so so many lessons so now all these years later i have probably just as many things even though most of them are newer things different things uh but i don't have attachment to them any longer so, and that's when I started exploring Buddhism and, and uh, have been able to do that here in the Catskills as well, because we have the Kadampa uh, uh, World Peace Temple right here, uh, not far from me, here in uh, the Catskills. So uh, uh, I, I learned in two minutes and 34 seconds uh, the uh, value of understanding impermanence of things. That's, that's kind of, you know, I haven't really looked at the earthquake that way, but that's when I learned that because I lost everything I owned and, and had to learn that it wasn't about the things at all. Yeah, I was going to ask you, and I, I knew you would have that kind of answer. I was going to ask you, you know, was that some sort of cleansing and learning experience? And, you it know, it's really rough. It was tough. <laughs> With that I had question, great attachment. Right, I'm sure, but you run the risk of like, no, it was just an earthquake, but I, I, I knew that it would not be that for you. It, no, but it is today. I mean, all right. these years later and having actively studied Buddhism for seven years, I, you know, like I, I really got deep into Buddhism when I, when I came back uh, to this part of the world and found the Kadampa World Peace Temple. So for about seven years, I went constantly a couple of days a week and just really immersed myself in learning as much as I could about Buddhism. And uh, I'm, I'm no Buddhist, <laughs> but I learned a lot about Buddhist principle. And one of those lessons that really uh, stuck with me was that attachment and uh, how we can be uh, live a more peaceful life if we don't have attachment. Uh, and that can be applied to any number of things. And I've said it to you. I think I've said it to you within the past two weeks. I said, mm -hmm. we can make this plan because it's great to have plans and ambitions and goals and dreams and desires. I mean, one of the great things about Kadampa Buddhism is it's designed for people in the Western world. You know, I don't live on a mountaintop chanting, nor do I wish to. But so I have plans. I have goals. I have ambitions. I make plans. Uh, I have ideas of how things should go, but I don't have attachment to the plan. And that's what Buddhism teaches us is that by having the attachment, it can only lead to disappointment. At the end of that road, no matter what happens between the plan and the attachment, there's disappointment at the end of that road. It may take a mm -hmm. while to get there. But if you don't have attachment, you can't be disappointed. And that's very, very freeing. So today, the 94 earthquake, how long ago was that? A long time, right? Uh, uh, today, I, I'm surrounded, as I said, while we're sitting here, by what I consider to be beautiful things. I'm looking at something that Gail, you just brought up, made for me. Mm. Uh, but in my in the, the best of all possible Buddhists' minds, I I picture it destroyed already, mm -hmm. uh, which gives me the ability to understand its impermanence. First of all, it's made out of glass. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at it; it's beautiful. I I revel in its beauty every day. But if toy toy toy, a rock came through the window and hit this thing and it shattered on the floor, it would not destroy me because in my mind's eye, it's already there. Does that make any sense at all? What a weird conversation to be having. Yes, it does. Um, Jonathan, you've done uh, the Catskills, Sullivan County. You've done our community a great, generous uh, service by being open with your with your sexuality. You're a very charming gay man. And I think that mm -hmm. I, I don't take that I say non-practicing, non-practicing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I still I, have my card, but yeah. Okay, go ahead. Um, you've done us a great service and I think it's, it's, it's a generous thing that you've done for people. And I think for, this might be naive of, of me, but I think you've, 
exposed a lot of people that maybe would not have been exposed and has really uh, you've given them an ability to relate and empathize and understand and and not be so afraid and, and you know I can't imagine how many people you've helped um, by doing that but what what at what point in your life does like sexuality become relevant at what point in your life does it start sort of shaping your narrative or what was that like wow 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 is all I can say to have right now to you Shlomo Franklin I am if you could see my face I'm like this is not a, a topic of conversation I saw coming <laughs> in any way shape or form and oh, I've done a lot casual. of interviews with a lot it's of people casual. uh that's that's such an interesting uh uh topic to 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 bring up I mean I've been sitting here the whole time going oh my god I can't believe he's saying this uh Jeepers. You can edit it out if you don't want to talk about it. No, 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 no. I mean, I, it's just nobody's ever asked. Mm. Nobody's ever asked. Uh, and I'm not entirely sure what the question was. <laughs> uh, but, but I think I have a good enough idea that I can respond. Please. Uh, and that is that my... Uh, I, I am, I am uh, out and loud gay man dude person uh and i have been for a really long time i mean you kind of asked me about my uh uh my uh upbringing mm -hmm. and uh the stonewall riots happened in 1969 mm -hmm. uh the same year that uh, the woodstock music festival happened uh, and the same year that i want to say man walked on the moon mm -hmm. uh, a lot of things happened and in 1969 i was 15 years old so I wasn't, I wasn't really a kid and I wasn't really a man. Uh, and I kind of wanted to be both for another mm -hmm. minute, but I was very cognizant of the fact that I was uh, what was certainly considered 1969 different than the other boys. You know, I knew something was going on. Mm -hmm. I knew something was going on. I was 15. Uh, I did not want it to be going on because I didn't really want to stand out from the world in that particular way. I already had a lot going on. <laughs> and then Stonewall happened. That's my point. Stonewall happened. And I watched it unfold before my 15-year-old eyes. And I heard my parents and their friends discussing the whole issue of homosexuality. And uh, 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 those that, that part of the family, nobody was called gay until then, up until then, it was words like pansy and fairy and fag uh, and all extremely negative. And there was there were no positives attached to gay people mm -hmm. uh, in until Stonewall happened and said and and all those people, all those amazing people stood up and said, we're not going to just take this anymore, period. So I was 15 watching it from that lens. And I knew in that moment that I was them. I got it immediately. Mm -hmm. in 1969 I said oh that's me and then I had to sit back and say wait a minute I'm I'm I, I'm I'm not a bad person I'm not any of those negative things that I'm hearing my parents talking about with their friends or what I'm reading about in newspapers or just hearing on the streets and you know that being what's now called gay it was a bad thing it certainly wasn't considered a good thing to me mm -hmm. but I had to sit back and say well wait a minute if that's me I'm I'm a good guy Mm -hmm. I'm a good guy. I had just had a conversation with my rabbi where I said, I didn't want to come to temple anymore. He's like, okay, you're cooked. You're done. You're a good guy. You know what you're doing. You've had a good <laughs> Jewish education and upbringing and I'm okay with that. Would I prefer, he said to me, that you continue coming to temple? Of course. He said, but I, I, I'm okay with that because it's not about the building you're in. And um, I equated those two things and said, well, if I'm, if I'm this, and people think that being this means that I can't hang with that. So I came out. I came wow. out to the world. I was fully out and saying to people, this is me. I came out to my family when I was 17 years old and said that, look, this is just how it is. I don't know what to tell you. I can't make my life about this. So my sexuality, the short answer to your interesting question is that being gay is obviously a big part uh, it's a part of who i am but it doesn't define me in any way and it never has i'm one of the lucky ones so i didn't use gay to define who i was i uh 
I uh, looked to all those other things, to performing and theater and music and creativity and life and writing and, and uh, applied all those things to my life as a gay man. So what I've brought to the table has never been intentional. And if that makes any sense. It makes a ton of sense. <laughs> and, and like I said, I mean, the, the just imagining you, you know, at 15 watching that on TV, um, and that sort of impact you I impacting you in that way. Um, I know you've oh, done it was that deep. Yeah. And, and there's no doubt in my mind that you've done that for other people, you know, whether you know it or not, like they didn't know that they were doing that for you, but you've cer certainly done that for other people, um, whether they are gay themselves or just struggling with an identity or just struggling to understand other people and, or feeling different in any way. And again, I think that's very generous. cool. I mean, I, I will say as far as where I live and the, the community that I live amongst, I mean, it's, that has never been uh, because I think I, I, I made a conscious decision at 15 that that's not, wasn't going to define me. It never has. And uh, before I decided to actually live here in Sullivan County, I came and visited uh, the region uh, over and over and over again for years. And mm -hmm. I explored a lot of it. And everywhere I went, I was like, well, nobody's looking at me cross-eyed. Mm -hmm. I have never experienced any kind of weirdness about the fact that somebody may or may not uh, be uh, aware of the fact that I'm gay, never once. That's great. And that's when I said, well, I can obviously come live there. But yeah, I do a... remember when I, I first moved here, somebody came up to me and said, you know what? I heard a rumor about you and I, I, it can't be true. Somebody I don't really know very well, but who was starting to get to know me through my work. And I said, well, lay it on me. I said, I can pretty much guarantee you, whatever you heard, it's true. <laughs> and it was a man. And he said, I heard that you were gay. Mm -hmm. That That's not true, is it? And I said, oh, dude, that is, I am so gay. Yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's true. And then we had a conversation about it. And in that conversation, he said, oh, well, I, I, I would never have, I, I would never have known that something along those lines. And I looked at him and I said, you're, you're saying that like, it's a compliment yeah. <laughs> and I'm not, I don't feel complimented. Yeah. And so I said, I said, in this moment, I said, so now you, you maybe you have a better understanding that gay people come in all sorts of shapes and sizes and colors. And there are, there are gay cowboys and gay farmers and, and, and gay ballerinas. And uh, I said, so now, you know, and he said, yeah, that's really, yeah, yeah, that's okay. I think you're cool. I said, well, oh. yeah, go, okay, <laughs> okay. So it has come up once in a while. My and that man, there. that man, you know, learned a lot from that experience. And of course he came to it with a sense of judgment and possibly even a shred of hatred or whatever disgust. But oh yeah, there were obviously preconceived notions which he was evolved enough to want to discuss. He wasn't expecting the answer he got, which was yes, it's true. Mm -hmm. But once he did, he said, but you know, we're friends. I've never yeah. been friends with someone gay before. And I said, I bet you that's yep. not true. Yep. But flash forward many years in response to what you just said, many years, I'm gonna say at least a half a dozen years flash forward. Uh, and I hadn't seen this person in a long time, but I got a phone call that um, uh, he and his wife had had a son. Mm -hmm. And uh, they named him Jonathan. And he wanted me to know uh, that they were naming him Jonathan because of his, my influence on his life. Wow. In whatever way. And that Jonathan, according to, uh, I, I think they were Catholic, apparently means God's gracious gift in some, it's certainly not in Hebrew, don't mean that. But uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, that was, you know, that was, that was big. He, he went out of his way to let me know that not, I hadn't spoken to him in years. He said, we had a baby and we named him Jonathan and it's because of you. Wow. So, I mean, I, I could live with that. <laughs> Again, and I, and I want people, I want people to understand, and I'm working to understand this myself, that it's not that he was a gay man and then needed that. He was a nor just a, you know, whatever, straight, whatever, wherever he was at. Yeah, he started He's, to say normal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, um, <laughs> he, but no, but because this is my point that it's not that, you know, only a if you're a certain ilk of someone, do you need people like you to make you feel represented? Whoever you are, you gain from other people being different and being exposed to them. So, you know, and, and we live in this culture where we're talking about a lot of, a lot about representation. And of course it's beyond important and it's such a valuable conversation, but 
I want people to know that like, you know, for, it's not just for like a young black girl to have like uh, black women to look up to. It's like, it's good for me. It's good for me to have like more representation of other people. Like I gain from it, even though I'm not going, Hey, I'm literally that thing. But the more, the more the, an individual is exposed to different, you know, shapes and sizes and different people, you're, you're the wiser, you're just better for it. And, you know, again, like you, you've done that, not just for, for, for gay people in our community, but just anyone that, uh, you know, was raised in, you know, place where they weren't that exposed or they were raised amongst prejudice and whatnot and judgment and, you know, fear of the unknown, blah, blah, blah. So uh, it's, it's well, exciting. I, I appreciate the fact that you want to dig a little deeper. It took me by surprise. It's certainly nothing. There's really almost, no, I don't think there's anything that's really a taboo subject for me. But again, uh, that particular aspect of my world has never been brought up uh, mm. by anybody other than myself. Uh, in any context whatsoever. And I don't want anybody to think I have any highfalutin ideas about myself at all. Like I did when I was in college. I don't, I'm just some dude living in the middle of the woods with fancy furniture. Uh, <laughs> and there are some parts of my life that are, are cool and some parts of my life that are less cool. Uh, but I have never thought about myself as uh, having any kind of influence over anybody in any way, shape or form. Uh, but you bringing it up, reminded me of that story which i haven't thought about in a long time i haven't thought about that man in a long long time or or that story or that anecdote but it's not it's not something i, I would ever go out of my way to uh make happen i, I appreciate <laughs> you telling me that yeah it's insane uh, it's incredible I, I i had not thought about that in a long time i was deeply deeply moved wow at the time I haven't thought so, about it in a long time so you end up you end up in the Catskills. I um, do. Does it feel like does it feel like you're returning home because you got Binghamton an hour away? Feel you feel at home? You feel absolutely. Once I decided that I was going to um, uh, move to Sullivan County, uh, I, I knew I wanted to live in Sullivan County because this is where I, I had been visiting for so long and I'd explored a lot and I, I had opportunities to make that happen. Um, I, I had been in uh, LA for thirty years at that mm -hmm. point uh, and had a, obviously a life and um, relationships with people, a full life, a full mm -hmm. life uh, uh, with a lot of ups and downs like everybody's lives and you know, major career changes. And so by that point, I was deep into being a writer, <clears throat> except I was doing it in uh, Los Angeles <laughs> and uh, not even necessarily writing what I wanted to write, even though some of it I wanted to do. And I, 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 I uh, really tried to, I, I worked very hard at cracking the writer's world in Los Angeles, which is a tough one. It's like being mm -hmm. an actor. You can't swing a dead cat in LA without hitting an actor. That's what mm -hmm. I've always said. And it's true about writers as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and my mother always said to me, why does it have to be a dead cat? And I said, a, a living cat's not going to let you swing it around. That's really my <laughs> reasoning uh, for saying such a thing. Um, but I was coming back and forth here constantly, as we've discussed. And uh, I did... Yeah, yeah, I, I uh, called all my close friends together in my backyard in Santa Monica where I had a fire pit. And these were people who knew that I spent every minute going camping as, as much as I could. I was living more in the woods than I was in, in Santa Monica. And I said, I've got something to tell you all. And they said, what is it? And I said, I'm moving, I'm going home. In answer to your question, I said, I'm going home. I'm moving, I'm moving to upstate, I'm moving to Sullivan County. And it was more upstate in Binghamton. Uh, I said, but that's yeah, familiar territory. Me, I I played the Forest Belt. There's wow. there's programs floating out there in the world of ephemera with me in them, like singing and dancing and musical reviews in the Borscht Belt when I was uh, 16 and 17 and 18 years old. So yes, I it felt like I was coming home. I felt uh, warm and fuzzy about um, I live in Bethel now. You know, I, I about where I was going, and. Uh, uh, I picked my my sorry ass up and hauled my entire life. I was an adult. I was a grown man. Uh, I, I, it was a, a later in life change that I didn't expect to make. And I was, you know, as they say, in my 40s. <laughs> <laughs> and I picked up and I, I relocated. I was waiting for good Wi-Fi. Uh, yeah. Because I said, I'm going to go write books and plays and uh, uh you know, novels and uh, all sorts of things. I'm going to write whatever I want to living in the woods. And I had this idyllic 
concept. I didn't know where the money was going to come from. It's not like, you know, I, it's not like I'm not a wealthy man. I didn't know where the money was going to come from. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, I, I kind of, uh, I had a blog at that time, an old blog called uh, working without a net. I shouldn't even be saying that out loud, but you can, I think you can still (laughs) find it working without a net. It was a, a personal blog that didn't have an editor and it doesn't have some of my greatest work in it, but it, it's got some <laughs> fun stuff on it. Uh, and I, and the, the uh, subset of that was leap in the net will appear. And I don't know what, I mean, I, I was unhappy. You know, I, I realized I was spending way more time uh, in the woods in a tent than I was in LA and that I needed to make a change. So I didn't really have a great plan, uh, but I called a moving van and I found a place to live and I picked my ass up and drove my pickup truck cross country. And here we are. (laughs) I leapt in the net appeared. Eventually uh, a newspaper and a magazine here and there came calling. And I said, no, I don't want to, I don't want to work for a newspaper, but (laughs) you know how that story ends. (laughs) (laughs) And it's and I do work for a newspaper and I've worked for all of them uh, that are right here in our general area in one form or another. And, uh, I, I do write for magazines on a freelance basis, but uh, uh, it, uh, I've had friends come visit me from California and look around and go, oh man, you, you said you were gonna go live in the middle of the woods and write for a living and that's what it. you do. I'm like, yeah, wow, man, yeah. <laughs> yeah. not making me rich. My boss made sure to bring that to my attention very recently, so <laughs> it's never gonna make you rich, but people appreciate what you do. So. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm rich in other ways. People, people love what you do and you're, you're just this beloved friend and character <laughs> and, so and not writer, true. but, but I, I gotta say you, you do share that admiration and love with another uh, being. Uh, can, you, can you tell folks about Dharma, Dharma, the wonder dog? I would love to. Wow. There are a lot of things to talk to me about, aren't there? Uh, oh my God. I, do, I have a this. list of things and I haven't even touched any of them. So we'll, we'll I see. Again. Uh, uh, Dharma the Wonder Dog is, is at my side as we speak, wearing a designer's sweater. And uh, she just <laughs> picked her head up. She was sound asleep. Dharma, for your uh, 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 fans and your listeners, uh, Dharma the Wonder Dog is uh, Havanese. And the Havanese are the national dog of Cuba. They're small dogs. She's a purebred dog. I had never had a purebred dog in my entire life. I had never even heard of the Havanese. It means little Havana. And they were bred about 150 years ago in Cuba, specifically to be companion dogs for children uh, of you know, upper classes and royalty. And, and so uh, whoever decided to breed these dogs bred out everything but the most amazing qualities any kind of uh, dog could have that's gonna live with a child forever, including look like a puppy their entire lives. So. Uh, the reason Dharma, the Wonder Dog, is in my life is that I have a form of epilepsy, which I developed after an accident well into my adulthood. So I had a completely normal, average, you know, uh, uh, non-brain injury life until uh, I was about 40. And uh, through a set of circumstances, I wound up with a form of epilepsy. I, I actually, I had a, a stroke and it caused a little bit of brain damage. And I developed this form of epilepsy, which, uh, you know, changed me forever, Uh, forever. It was really, really hard. And um, seven years into that, I found out about uh, something called seizure alert dogs. Mm -hmm. And uh, 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 seizure alert dogs exist, as do a lot of other assistance dogs now that didn't exist even 15 much less 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's all still a new science. So I found out that there was such an animal as a seizure alert dog who could help people like myself let us know in advance, somehow magically, and now I know how the magic works, uh, that we were going to have a seizure and we could uh, take steps to avoid that happening. So Dharma, the wonder dog, is actually a seizure alert dog. She went to school to learn how to take care of me when she was only uh, 12 weeks old. And uh, she's a, what's called a scent alert dog because what she's doing is smelling my brain chemistry, mm-hmm. which changes prior to a seizure. So, you know, a lot of people who are even mildly familiar, only mildly familiar with epilepsy might be aware of the fact that uh, somebody who is epileptic can have a seizure brought on by a visual cue. 
uh, like a strobe light. That's the most famous one. If uh, somebody is epileptic and they're exposed to a strobe light, that will undoubtedly cause, uh, trigger the brain to go into seizure mode. Dharma can't help me with something like that. She can't smell a strobe light about to be turned on when she's at a theater. <laughs> that would make her psychic. Mm -hmm. uh, but she can smell very subtle changes in my brain chemistry that occur a good, a good 15 minutes ahead of time before I have any clue whatsoever that I might be in danger of having a, 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 a seizure. So since she can do that because she's smelling it, she went to school to learn how to alert me to the fact that that is happening because I'm not smelling it. I don't know. I'm just talking to you and I have no clue anything is wrong. Hmm. Uh, but Dharma has, uh, uh, is tra fully trained uh, and accredited and legal to be with me 24-7, which, as you know, more than most people, well, everybody here knows, Dharma is with me. Dharma the Wonder Dog is with me 24-7. And because she's a Havanese, I mean, I brought up all of the, her many uh, physical charms as well. Because of, because of that and the fact that she is this magical creature that can't help but touch people's lives, she's become a celebrity uh, hmm. uh, on her own. And the reason she's become a celebrity is that she has a chauffeur who, for the past 11 years, <laughs> has taken her to Broadway shows and to concerts at Bethel Woods and to art galleries, because that's what I do for a living. It just happens that she's there too. And now she's become her own, you know, she's, she's, she's her own brand. She's on Instagram, Dharma the Wonder Dog. Follow her. Absolutely. Please follow, follow her, her, yeah, her, follow on her on Instagram. Facebook. She's on Facebook. Yeah. Uh, she doesn't do Twitter because that's so old school. You yeah. know? But she's, she's got a fairly active uh, social media presence mm -hmm. and has made my job so much easier because over the many years that I've interviewed people about all sorts of things, uh, they don't always want to. Mm -hmm. uh, kids don't always want to have their pictures taken. Adults often don't want to have their pictures taken, but they're so charmed by Dharma the Wonder Dog that it puts them at ease. And it, she really does, she obviously helps me every single day in keeping healthy and alive and upright and not mm -hmm. having a seizure. Uh, before Dharma, I was taking medication every day, uh, whether I was uh, prone to having a seizure or not. And now I only take my medication at night so that both of us can sleep soundly. She doesn't have to worry about me at night. She can sleep and not just be on constant patrol. Uh, but otherwise I don't take medication unless she lets me know I need to. Hmm. And uh, then I can take a fast acting liquid form of anti-seizure uh, medication and, not, and sit down as she tells me to do, get yourself over there, find a bench, find a rock, sit down, take a pill, relax. And uh, she has changed my life. She has changed wow. my life and she is my soulmate. She is wow. absolutely my soulmate. I've had dogs my entire life, thankfully. Uh, my mother raised me to be a man who loves animals. Uh, and so I, I've lived with dogs my, and some cats my entire life. Mm -hmm. And they've all been amazing. But Dharma, you know, she's the wonder dog. Yeah. Wow. She loves I'm, you too. Uh, I, love, I love her. And um, you mentioned going to concerts. We, you've, you've been generous. You've taken me to quite a few at Bethel Woods. You know, it's insane. I'm just sitting there in the front row looking at this band. Like, I, I, this is nuts. Last time I was on the lawn, you know. Um, and I, that was something I really missed um, doing with you this summer. And I really hope we yeah. get to do that. I really, really hope we get to do that next summer. I think we will. Um, or I, I, I am we'll cautiously hang out. optimistic. Yeah, we'll build hang out in some capacity. And I value, yeah. I value our time. I value your time so much. I value um, the, the past, but I, I'm, I'm optimistic and excited for, for the future and just being grateful for every day. And um, yeah, it's. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's the best, uh, one of the best things I could bring to the table talking to anybody. I, I uh, 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 if somebody younger were to ask any advice of me, just as a, a slightly older person who's been around the block a few times, and that's why I have so many stories to tell. I've been really lucky I, uh, up to this point. I've, I've lived a very rich uh, life. I've been busy. I've been busy. I have not sat back. So that's why I have so many stories to tell them. Hopefully I'm not through uh, telling them anytime soon. No, uh, you are not. Uh, and, you know, we all, I got plenty of advice when I was young, when I was your age, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, 
got plenty of advice from people who were my age. And I don't know how much of it I took to heart. I heard a lot of it because I remember it now that I'm their age. Uh, and that's kind of circles back to uh, Buddhism and Buddhist principle and what is important and what isn't important and where we live and what we're doing and how we're doing it. Uh, I think probably the, the best piece of advice I could give to somebody right now who just came up and said, what, what is it? What's the one thing? I would say be present, be in the moment, live in the now, uh, which sounds trite. And that's why when I was your age, I was like, boy, that sounds trite. But uh, it's true. That's why older, wiser people tell younger people, hoping that it will stick with somebody. Because being in the now, I haven't done it my whole life. Uh, I do it now for a variety of reasons. I do it mm -hmm. now. I live in the moment now. I picture the beautiful thing I love broken now. I'm not really thinking about yesterday. And I, again, that's where it comes to plans and ambitions and goals. Think about tomorrow, absolutely. But live in the moment, live in the now. I, of course we should plan, of course we should uh, have goals. Of course we should have ambitions. Otherwise, why are we here at all? I, and I mean that even on the simplest of levels. And I've said it to you before and I'll say it to you again. If you say, can we get together next Friday? I said, well, we can make a plan to do it, but let's, let's just be present now. Let's, I'll pencil that in on the calendar and we'll see how that works out. Uh, but unless we, uh, I'm sitting here with Dharma right now talking to you and I've had such a wonderful, wonderful stimulating conversation with you as they always are, but this one's been particularly long. So I appreciate you indulging me because I love talking with you. For this whole conversation, I forgot that anything else existed and this has made me very happy. Um, <laughs> and yeah. I love you so much, Jonathan. You you know that, but I, I love you so much. And I'm I love so you too. grateful that, that I know you. Grateful for our friendship. And you're a mentor to me. You're a hero of mine. And uh, you're, you're the coolest. You're the, you're, you're the coolest. And I, I appreciate you so much. And let's do this again because I have a lot more to ask you about. Uh, 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 sure. Let's do it again. Let's make a plan and just not have attachment to it. Yeah. Uh, but we can absolutely okay. plan to do this again. I have to say, I don't know. God only knows what you're going to do mm -hmm. with all of this. But uh, I, it's been really good for me, too. And, and uh, uh, I, I'm so grateful for our uh, uh, friendship and our relationship, which really transcends time and space. Uh, you know, you're just one of those uh, people in my life. Our, our relationship transcends all of those things. I, when we met, we knew that that was the case. And I'm grateful for you in my life. And uh, you make me sound way cooler than I actually am. I ain't all that. <laughs> That's far from it. Far from it. You're too humble. But uh, thank you. I, I feel the same way. And uh, yeah, you're the best. Thank you. All right. We'll speak again soon. Okay. Looking forward to it. All right. Bye.